So, James chapter 4. Uh, we're going to jump straight into the text this morning. And we read in verse 1 of James 4, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lust that war in your members? Now, as we go into this chapter, there needs to be kind of a little, a little caveat uh, up front here because evidently what was going on in the church there was leading to conflict uh, and so James is now going to address some of these things but actually he's not really changing the theme of what he's already been saying because as we've seen already in the study James had already said in effect to think about how you act toward each other uh, he'd given that example of rich people coming into the assembly, people that are well-dressed, uh, and the way that maybe we would respond to those that would be different to the way we would respond to somebody that maybe wasn't so uh, well-dressed or didn't appear to be affluent. He's also gone on to talk about the tongue, uh, the danger of the tongue, the danger of the words that we say to each other when we uh, don't necessarily think about what we're saying or when the, the source of what we're saying isn't a godly source and really this comes back to that same underlying theme that we've been going on and looking at now for the last number of weeks has been going through james that we've got to understand the direction of flow that causes you to judge with impure motives you see if we were to look at things from god's perspective we would have a very different impression of people now, we've seen a, a really vivid example over the last uh, 10 days or so in the world uh, with this uh, whole situation uh, with this individual in America, um, Floyd, who was um, murdered by the police in America uh, and the, the reaction that that's brought around the world, um, the way that people are so quick to judge based upon what they perceive on the outward. I mean, unfortunately, I think there is a misnomer, uh, a misunderstanding here, and there's a lot of uh, misinformation that's being spread. And what I mean by that is that the Bible says uh, in the book of Acts that there is not different races. There is one race. We are of one blood. It's the human race. You know, and actually the problem isn't so much racism, although that's being touted as being the problem. The real problem is the way that people perceive other people who are not in their particular group and their particular um, social environment. And that's one of the challenges. And that pervades society. It's not just a, a an issue of skin color. Um, that, in a sense, is kind of a side issue. It's being made to be the big thing. But the real problem here is the way that individuals are treated based upon their uh, their standing in society, their, their wealth or not, uh, and so on. And unfortunately, this is the whole issue that James was addressing, uh, the way that we judge other people, that we place, in a sense, a value on other people's lives, of whether we think they are uh, of value to us or not of value to us. Now, from a, a biblical perspective, and this is James's point that he makes back in the first chapter and going into the second chapter, the same thing, that, you know, we need to be so careful that we don't judge people with impure motives. We need to see people as Jesus would see people. Jesus never looked at people's skin color or whether they were a male or whether they're a female, whether they're a Jew, whether they're a Gentile in that sense. Of course, Jesus came to the house of Israel, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel first. But he spoke to Gentiles. He spoke to Samaritans. You know, Jesus didn't care about those social boundaries that we build up. And as the church, 
We've got to be very careful we don't fall into that whole political argument and, and start trying to make our own little agendas and points here. The real issue here is, are we loving as Christ loved? Because if we do, then the whole issue that is being spoken about at the moment starts to dissipate if we just show that love for everybody regarding of their standing. Again, as James said, whether they seem to be uh, well off or in a sense, the underlying idea is, can they benefit me? Can they help me or, or not? You know, so there's a lot that's so applicable um, to our current situation that we've already been looking at that James has been saying, but it really speaks again of that, that source of flow. Are we influenced by the worldly things, you know, that teach us to look out for ourselves, to do the things that will benefit us? Or are we looking at things from a godly perspective where, of course, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. But the second is just like it, and that's to love our neighbors as ourselves. And the children this morning, they're going through the Ten Commandments, and what are the Ten Commandments? tell us well the first part of the ten commandments the first tablet is all about loving the lord your god the second tablet is all about loving a neighbor as yourself it's all summed up in the law you know this goes back to well to really the garden of eden but really from the time the law was given um you know from that moment then we've got this very clear mandate that we have to put god first we have to put other people before ourselves and we're to think about the way we treat others. And the, James's argument here is, you know, that, that's great in society, and all, all true and applicable, but especially in the church. You see, again, we need to understand the, the source of the flow that comes out of our tongue, the things that we say. And that's what we've gone through already. So really, James is building here on that and saying, you know, actually, there's and I like the expression he uses, you know, or, or the way we have it translated from when come wars and fightings. You know, this isn't just little squabblings. These are situations where we can be almost bitterly opposed to others within the fellowship. Now, not necessarily just our own fellowship. Uh, and I hope and pray we haven't got anything quite that extreme. But certainly within the church, we see all sorts of these type of things with one group kind of very much pitted against another group and lots of challenges. Now, of course, there are issues regarding doctrine and we're to stand up for the truth and speak the truth in love and so on. All applicable stuff. But, you know, there should never be wars and fightings, not within the, the, the church of Jesus Christ, not within the body of Christ. It's crazy to think that a, a body would fight itself. Um, and yet, of course, that, that's exactly what we see often in the church. Now, <clears throat> I've heard it said before, and I think it's very true, that either giving in to a lust or rejecting it will bring disappointment. Now, the reason I say that is because James says here that the source, the wars, the fightings come from the lusts that war in our members, in our bodies. Okay, so it's that worldly influence that actually changes our attitude and our mindset. Okay, and this applies within a fellowship, but it also applies even even more so within a family. You know, any family unit, if people are just caring about their own pleasure, their own wants, their own desires or whatever. And by the way, lust, often we tend to think of lust uh, in a physical uh, sense, but this can apply in all sorts of things. You know, a lust is wanting something and wanting it now. Uh, and that can apply to uh, attitudes we have in terms of, uh, wanting retribution if somebody wrongs us. You know, if somebody in your household wrongs you, what do you do? What's your response? You know, do you show the grace of Jesus Christ back or do you look to get even? You know, and it's something we need to be teaching our children that we need to show that grace uh, to others that we would want to receive ourselves. 
You know, and the point here is that because giving into a lust or rejecting it, either way is going to bring disappointment and it will. The best thing to do is to avoid it in the first place. We've got to turn off the tap of the flow of things into our lives that are ungodly. And James is really going to hammer that. Now, this chapter this morning really is quite a uh, a brutal chapter. We, we've said already that uh, James is considered by many commentators and scholars to be one of the most author- authoritarian writers of Scripture. You know, the things he writes are just direct commands. And we've seen that in our introduction. We talked about the, the way that James writes this. And no doubt, building on his own experience, growing up in the same family as Jesus, seeing the way Jesus dealt with and responded to challenges and situations and hurts and so on. You know, we saw back in the first chapter um, that we're not to put ourselves in a place where that desire will conceive. Okay, so, you know, we've got to cut off those things, cut off the source of those things. Because desire, when it uh, conceives, we're told it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So we need to just kind of avoid these problems in the first place. Because once that lust enters into our heart, our mind, that desire to get even, or it could be even physical lust and lust of the flesh and so on. You know, all of those things, they can, they're so uh, toxic to our system. I just want to read this to you from Oswald Chambers. This is from his uh, book or the book that was uh, put together of his teachings on the psychology of redemption. Uh, and he makes this comment, reading from 1 Corinthians fifteen forty-seven. He says, the first man is of the earth, earthly. He says, this is man's glory, not his shame, because it is in a creature made out of the earth that God is going to manifest his glory. We are apt to think that being made of the earth is our humiliation. But it is the very point that is made much of in God's word. In the Middle Ages, it was taught that sin resided in the actual fleshly body, and that therefore the body was a clog and a hindrance. The Bible says that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, not a thing to be despised. Sin is not in having a body and a nature that needs to be sanctified. Sin is in refusing to sacrifice them at the call of God. I thought it was really quite insightful because in all of this, we need to understand that having a body being uh, in our, our fleshly frames where we have desires and so on, that in and of itself is not sinful. The problem is when we don't yield to the Lord, when we don't yield to Jesus Christ, when we're not obedient in the things he calls us to do. Well, I'll explore this more as we go forward. In verse 2, it says again, you lust, you have not, you kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you have not because you ask not. Uh, you know, look at this, what it says here. Uh, it says, you lust and have not. It says, you kill. I mean, firstly, what it's, the verse is saying is that you, you're being driven by the flesh. Now, James is writing this to these Gentiles, sorry, these uh, um, believers, um those that were saved, those that have come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior, he's writing to them and saying, look, this effectively shouldn't be. He's already alluded to a fresh spring and a bit of not bringing forth the same. You know, we as believers should show this uh, likeness to Jesus Christ in the way we live by being connected to him, not being connected to the things of the world and showing a likeness to the things of the world. And they're saying the, the problem is, just like the people of the world, we lust. And he says, you have not, and you kill. And it's literally, it's, you commit murder. 
That's what uh, James is saying here. Now, murder is defined as taking the life of another, but that actually is what we're doing so often when we allow those worldly desires to take control of us. We may not be murdering in an actual physical sense, and obviously, I hope and pray not, but in a spiritual sense, so often we kill others. We kill others by our own desires. We kill others by the things we say. We kill others by the things we do. We, in a sense, suck the life out of them. We we, we don't point people to Jesus. We're a bad example so often. And this is kind of a hard lesson this morning, but this is what James is saying. And the challenge, the spotlight comes on every single one of us as to where we really are this morning. There's kind of a line. And which side of that line as believers are we on? Are we being influenced by the world? That um, bottom uh, quote there from the NASB, I like the way it puts it. It says, uh, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain. What it's saying is that actually the, the driving force, the motivation in your life has actually become things of the world. And you've just got that worldly mindset of wanting things. And actually, you can't obtain it. And that just makes you frustrated. That makes things even worse. Again, as I said, lust, either if it's satisfied or not, will, will bring disappointment. This is so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Now, what a contrast from what James tells us in chapter 1, verse 17, where he tells us that every good gift comes from God. So here we are as believers. And, and, and you may not think this applies to you this morning, but James certainly knew it applied to those that he was writing to. Okay. But James says that the source of every good gift comes from God. So why are we going fishing in the world to try and find things to satisfy, satisfy us, to fulfill us? Why is our desire for worldly things when God has already told us that he will give us every good gift, everything that we need that is beneficial for us, that is a blessing to us? Of course, in Matthew 7, 7 to 11, we read these words, Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asks receives, and he that seeks finds, and to him that knocks it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you whom if his son asks bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then be evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? James is saying, you know, you're hankering after all these worldly things. You're looking to be satisfied and and made content by the things the world can offer. But he's saying, actually, those things won't bring that contentment. They won't bring that peace. They won't bring that uh, sense of fulfillment that you uh, are led to believe by your flesh, by the devil, by the world that they'll bring. They don't. But God, of course, wants to bless us. You know, it's like we're searching for this contentment, this this joy in our lives. And Scripture says it's in God. Everything you want is found in him. And yet we go, yeah, but what about this? And it's like, well, just we need to join the, the dots together and just really think this through. Verse 3, he goes on and James kind of doesn't contradict himself, but kind of corrects himself and says, actually, you know, I said you don't ask, you do ask. But you're not receiving. And the reason you're not receiving is because the things you're asking for, you're asking for for the wrong things. He says, because you ask amiss, that you may consume it upon your lust. In other words, you're asking for, oh, Lord, please bless me. Please give me this. Please give me that. 
It's the, the focus hasn't changed. You know, whether you're going to the world to get those things or whether you're going to God and asking that he'll bless you in a, a material sense or whatever else, the, the, the desire is not coming from a godly heart, but from a worldly, material, fleshly driven heart. Psalm 37 verse 4 says this, Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of thine heart. Now, it's a verse that often has been uh, uh, abused, misquoted, misused. People say, well, if I delight myself in God, I'll get whatever I want. That is not what this verse is saying. This verse is literally saying God will place with it. If you delight yourself in God, put God first in our heart, our soul, our mind, everything, that God will place within you the right to desires. He will give you the desires Okay, not give you the things you desire, but he will give you the desires of your heart. And of course, that's going to lead to peace and blessing. And that's what we need to be doing. The problem is all the time we are so accustomed to the worldly ways of things, the worldly mindset. And of course, we are so influenced by what comes through the media, what comes through our TVs, uh, what we see going on in the world around us, our ungodly, unchristian friends, those maybe that we mingle and mix with in the workplace and whatever else. So many ways the world influences us. Just just general advertising. I mean, it's almost impossible to leave your home and go anywhere without seeing some form of advertising. And all advertising is, is somebody telling you what you need to make your life better. And the problem is that those things shape our desires. And what Scripture is saying, what this psalm is saying, Psalm 37 verse 4, is you need to let your desires be reshaped. Let God place within you the things that you should desire. Oh, and what a blessing comes from a life that is lived that way. <clears throat> also, Chambers, again, from that uh, work, The Psychology of Redemption, says this, uh, Satan is never represented in the Bible as being guilty of doing wrong things. He is wrong being. His whole nature is such. But then he says, men are responsible for doing wrong things and they do wrong things because of the wrong disposition in them. Okay, again, let me just go back to this uh, diagram we've looked at most weeks now, really, but um, it's a source of flow. You know, if that disposition that is ruling our lives is coming from the world, then we're going to struggle. As James has been talking about, all the problems that he's speaking about, that um, the way we treat each other, that, that murder in a sense in our hearts, the way we want to put others down to lift ourselves up, the way we're concerned about our own standing, our own um, justify ourselves, whatever the situation. You know, the way that, that we remain bitter because of the way people have hurt us in the past or uh, the way that and we we respond to people um, because we don't want to seem to be inferior. We're always concerned about our status or our standing or our position. Uh, we don't want to be put down in any way. Yeah, and all those things that come from the world. On the other side of that, of course, we're fed by the things of God. And of course, there's great contentment. There's great peace because you know, as a child of God, that you are loved of God. It doesn't get better than that. You'll never be more accepted than in God, because God accepts you as you are. It was while you were yet a, yet a sinner that Christ died for you. You won't have a greater love in your life than the love that God brings. You won't have a greater sense of peace than the peace that comes from that relationship with God. I mean, the reason most people have unrest and uh, show uh, have, have anxiety and so on is because there's a disconnect between them and God. If we are connected to God, 
then we should be content. As Paul said, you know, he's learned to be content in all things, in all situations. Why? Well, because the things of this world are not the priority. It's not about his standing. It's not how other people see him. It's simply about that relationship with God. We get that right and everything else falls into place. It's what Jesus said uh, again in Matthew's gospel. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added to you. Again, get that flow right. Understand that God is a source of blessing if we are connected to him. If our, if he has given us those desires in our hearts, again, we go to him, that which we ask in prayer without doubting, we ask in faith, we've promised that he will hear us when we pray. Verse 4 goes on, you adulterers and adulteresses. I mean, this is pretty tough language um, from from James, this kind of head of the church. I mean, this is the kind of thing that people are, oh, I'm not going back to that church again. I mean, you can imagine those that received this letter first time round, thinking, oh, this is a lovely letter from James. James, oh, he's that really wonderful, great. He's a pastor in Jerusalem, isn't he? Yeah, I know James. And then it gets, you get a letter that's saying you're an adulterer and adulteress, you know, calling you a murderer. I mean, this is really heavy stuff, but this is the intensity that James is wanting to get across to us. That this stuff matters. You know, it's not stuff you can, it doesn't really matter. You can live how you want as a Christian. James is saying, no, you cannot. There's a standard that we need to live to. It's a godly standard. It's a righteous standard. We don't have to do the work. God does that work in us, but we need to yield. We'll come to that in a while. So again, you adulterers and adulteresses, know you not the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Okay, just to clarify here, this is adultery that he's referring to, not fornication. So just to clarify, in Scripture, we have those two terms used. Fornication speaks of uh, an intimate relationship outside of a marriage context. But adultery... Well, adultery is indulging in a relationship other than with the one you are espoused to. And um, what is James is saying is that we have been espoused to God. We are in this relationship with God. We are, as the church, the bride of Christ. And so any relationship we indulge in outside of that is considered adultery. So although it seems a really kind of... Um, uh, nasty slur almost that James is making here, saying, you know, you accusing those that are reading this, which is you and I, of being adulterers and adulteresses, actually, he's right on. Because any relationship we have outside of that relationship with God, anything that becomes more important to us than that relationship with Jesus puts, puts us in that category. And he says, again, know you not that your friendship with the world. Now, friendship uh, in the Greek, it's philia. Uh, it's really fondness. That That's not a, an easy thing to swallow if you start to think about the implication. James is saying, don't you know that even fondness with the world is enmity with God? Well, think of all the things you're fond of, the things you like to do in your spare time. How many of those things have as their source something of the world? Be it sport, be it films, TV, whatever we watch, be it whatever activity, even being things such as uh, keeping yourself personally fit and going to the gym and so on. What's the purpose for that? Well, of course, there's a, there's a sensible uh, argument that can be made for keeping yourself physically fit, but so often that becomes a goal in itself. You, you're wanting to be better or seen better by other, be seen better by other people. So again, it's the root of all those things. What are we fond of? And this really touches so much of our life. This is really a kind of a tough lesson to take this morning, but it's, it's where we are. This is what the Lord is saying. And this is the challenge that's being laid before us. The, 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 that word affiliate, again, it's where we get the word affiliation. 
You know, it's not talking about people that are absolutely in love with the world. Are you affiliated to the world? You know, other things in the world that kind of you consider, you know, okay, well, you enjoy this and you enjoy that. Well, this is the challenge. And look what James is saying. Again, this is not me saying this. is what James is saying this morning. He uses the word, it's enmity. Okay? And this kind of, this, this Greek word, uh, ekthra. And it literally means hatred, or the NASB translates it as hostility. So if we are fond of the world, then it's hostility toward God. Why? Well, because God paid the ultimate price in sending Jesus and has purchased us by the blood of Christ. And then we go and indulge with the things of the world. And that's why James says adulterers, adulteresses. Really heavy lesson here this morning. Verse 5 goes on. Do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit that dwells in us lusts to envy? Uh, again, I, I, the NASB, I like the way this translates. It says, or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? In other words, do you, do you think the scripture doesn't matter? Don't, don't you think it applies to your life? That God really does care about the way we live our lives? You see, so often we have uh, teaching about grace, about salvation, about God's goodness, the way that we're saved by grace, that we don't have to contribute anything. And all of that is true. But the danger is it can provoke complacency in us. And that's what James is trying to address. James is saying, don't just take your salvation for granted. You can't work towards it. You can't earn it. There's nothing in you that can make you right with God. But once you have been made right with God, well, then you should be being sanctified. That is set apart. That means that we should redirect that flow. That means that the source should not be from the world but from god and we've said already you know we're talking about reading god's word we're talking about praying we're talking about fellowship of course breaking of bread and then the cup together all of those are the four things in in acts chapter two that were so foundational to the church you know anything we're doing that is filling our lives with godly things is good okay and, and james again you know this idea the, the, the scripture hasn't spoken in vain it doesn't just glibly make comments that don't really matter and it goes on to say that the spirit that dwells in us lusts to envy in numbers 23 19 we read this god is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man that he should repent god's not going to go back on the things that he's already given us in his word the things he's told us the way we should live our lives he has said and will he not do it Oh, Ecclesiastes says that God requires an account of things that are past. Now, of course, in regard to sin, it's all been paid for. But we are made very clear in the New Testament that when we get to the, the beamer seat, the judgment seat of Christ, everyone's work will become clear, become manifest, because the day will declare it. Okay, and if we, we're going to receive a reward if we've sown to the Spirit. But is Galatians again, 6.18, I think it is, tells us that, you know, if we sow to the flesh, we're going to reap corruption. So God is very serious. The scripture is very serious about these things. You know, has he spoken and he will not make it good? In other words, not full, uh, follow through on the things he said? No, no, God is not going to bend the rules for us. He's not going to say, oh, well, it was okay. You know, you were saved. That was really all that matters. And of course, salvation is the, the primary thing. But once we are saved, there is an expectation. And scripture makes it very clear that we should be living for his glory and not our own. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Know you not that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. 
Uh, this is why these things are so important, because God has chosen to send his spirit to dwell in you and I. So everything you do, everything you say, everything you look at, every place you go, you are taking the spirit of God with you. You are making him part of all of those things that you spend your time doing. And he says, if any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Now, we could probably spend a morning just going through talking about really the implication of this. What does it mean? What does it mean that God would destroy? Well, I think we could get a clue in Corinthians where we have an individual that Paul says to the congregation to to reject to cast out of the church because that individual was indulging in a, an immoral relationship. And he says, hand such a one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh to destroy him. And I think that you will find that if you are playing around with things of the world, okay, if you're allowing ungodly influences and things in your lives that are becoming more important to you or are more important to you than the relationship you have with God, if those things, if even talking about them this morning makes you uncomfortable because you think, well, but, 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 you know, this isn't such a bad thing and you're trying to justify it. Well, there's probably the Holy Spirit putting his finger on you already saying you need to be aware or, or think about where your priorities really are. And, and God will sometimes allow you to go through a very, uh, difficult time. Um, one of those kind of night seasons sometimes. Again, God doesn't tempt, but we saw back in the very first chapter of this book that God does allow challenges to come into our lives. Why? The trials and so on that we experience that we may be perfect and entire and complete, lacking nothing. Okay. And this verse is telling us, you know, if you're playing around with the things of the old life, okay, then God will destroy. And I don't, God's not going to crush you. That's not what this is saying. But God will allow you to come to such a place like the prodigal son did of looking and saying, wow, look what I would have had in my father's house and look what the world has given me. So sometimes the Lord allows us to go through those very difficult times. If we're going through this, so be very careful because that's not a road that anybody wants to go down. Okay. The prodigal son, uh, experience. It is not a good experience. Yes, the father was there. Yes, the father welcomed him with open arms. But what needless pain was borne by that individual? What needless pain is borne in our lives? Because we have to sometimes go through these valleys to learn how to climb the mountain. And then we saw that this has got to be to me one of those great verses of the Bible. There's a few verses in the Bible that I absolutely love to bits. I love in Daniel where it says that Daniel purposed in his heart. I love that expression. You know, I love the bit in the book of Ruth where Ruth happens upon the field of Boaz. That's just one of those lovely scriptures. It just, just happens. God, of course, ordains the whole thing, you know, and then we have in Ephesians that great statement, but God, it talks about all the problems, all the challenges, but God, you know, we were dead in trespasses and sins and so on, but God, what a great line. And then this one needs to be added to that list, but he gives more grace. So all the stuff we've just been talking about, all the, the challenges, all the problems, all the, the worldliness that so impacts and influences our lives. Well, look at verse six. Just read that a few times. Get that in your head. They become a memory verse. James four, verse six. But he gives more grace. And again, James four, verse six. He gives more grace. Everything you need to live a godly life is waiting for you simply to, to claim. All right. This morning, 
as it happens, I wanted to, to get a couple of those quotes that I put in there from the NAS, NASB. Uh, I, I got a number of different Bibles and I go to different ones. I, as you know, I, I prefer to use the King James as my main study Bible uh, to use to read. But I like looking sometimes at the other translations. And uh, I didn't have a digital copy of it. It's easy just to, to copy and paste from a digital copy. So I just went on to, I use Olive Tree as Bible software. Some of you may be familiar with that. It's quite a good Bible uh, program, easy to find things and use. Loads of great commentaries, a lot of free resources. So uh, if you've not got it and you want to get, get it, just uh, search for Olive Tree. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just useful tool. But I, I, I purchased uh, the NASB and downloaded it this morning. Now, it was one thing purchasing it. Okay, it was mine. The moment I'd kind of put my credit card details in, I'd bought it. Uh, it was only just a few dollars in America, so you know. But I had to download it. If I didn't download it, the fact that it was mine meant nothing. I couldn't access it until I downloaded it. Okay, and when it downloaded, it's then on my computer. I've now got it. All right, that's in a sense is a poor analogy to a point, but that's a little bit like grace. It's yours. It's there. All the blessings, all the riches, that acronym. I know that the, the, um, the young people did this uh, last month at the, at the youth group meeting. Uh, the acronym, God's Riches at Christ's Expense. That's, that's what grace is. It's God's riches because it cost Jesus. Okay, we get it because Jesus paid for it. It cost him everything, but it's now freely available to you and I. And this verse says he gives more grace. It's just an overflowing abundance and God wants to give it. But if you don't download it, if you don't go to God and ask for it, if you don't uh, apply it to your life, it means nothing. Yeah, just the fact that it's there doesn't help you unless you reach out and claim it. And you need to be going to the Lord and seeking him. And when you do, there's an abundance of grace and he gives more grace. So all the things we were just talking about a little while ago, the challenges, the problems, the, the worldliness, and so on. All of that is nothing compared to what God can give if only we turn to him and we allow God to be that source of the flow into our lives, to our heart and minds. The verse says, wherefore, he said, God resists the proud, but gives grace unto the humble. And this really is a quote from Psalm 138, verse six, where it says, for though the Lord is exalted. So just think about that. It said, though God is God, though God sits in the heavens, he's the Lord of all, the Lord of glory. Yeah, he regards the lowly. Yeah, he looks at those who are are contrite in heart. The Lord looks at those that have nothing. The Lord looks at those that are at their wits end, those that are desperate, those that are calling out and seeking. But then he says, but the haughty, he knows from afar. In other words, he keeps a distance from them. He separates himself from them. He knows from afar. And, And again, if you are in the world, in the world system, allowing the world to influence you, and as we've been, all those things we've been talking about, where you put yourself in the position of the haughty. If you're not prepared this morning to submit to God, then you're in that place of the haughty. And notice there's a distance between you and God. We get to verse seven. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. So everything we've just said, so submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Okay. And I'll come back to the submit in a short while, but I just wanted to underline this because we read this so often. And I think we have a misunderstanding generally about what this verse is saying. It says resist the devil. It's not speaking of Satan. All right, let me make that really clear. If you notice, it's lowercase d, even in the, the King James way it's translated. It says, literally, resist diabolos. That's the Greek word. It's a an adjective, not a noun. It's not the name 
of an individual. It's not the name of Satan. It's not resist the person of the devil. It's resist this disposition that is within you, that is devilish, that is sinister, that is against the things of God. And the word, again, Babylon just means prone to slander, slanderous, accusing falsely, and so on. Uh, calamity, uh, sorry, uh, uh, culminator, uh, false accuser, slanderer. Uh, that um, uh, 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 culminator means malicious. Is simply what that that means. It's all of those ideas tied up. Everything that's against God. So really, uh, yeah, it's a metaphor applied to a man who, by opposing the cause of God may be said to act the part of the devil or to side with him. So it's saying, submit yourselves to God. Resist that disposition in your life that is ruled by the world, that that worldly influence. Resist that. Okay? And it says, and he, although it says, and he, be really clear here, it's uh, the the word again in the Greek is fuego um, in, in 26 times is translated just simply flee. The, the he implies that it's an individual that we're fleeing from. Now, the individual you're fleeing from is your flesh life, the old man, as scripture sometimes refers to it. So three times it's translated escape, twice it's uh, flee away. So it's literally resist that disposition within you that's opposed to God, flee from that. Okay, flee from that. Get away from those things. You know, Joseph, when he was in Egypt, when he's tempted by Polyphar's wife, uh, and as I've, I've said a number of times, you know, sometimes that we, I think there's that mindset, uh, and forgive me if this is just me, but that we think of kind of Potiphar's wife as some kind of Joan Collins type of character. You know, you think, not really interested, thank you very much. You know, but in actual fact, at that time, because the age span in Egypt wasn't that high, 40 years old was typically the, you know, a good age. We see that from some of Pharaoh's comments, uh, that Jacob was amazed how old he was when he gets to meet him. Um, the, the Potiphar's wife would have probably been a young, beautiful woman. And, and Joseph flees, but he's not just fleeing from her. He's fleeing from that desire within him to do something about that offer that had been presented to him. Because, of course, if Joseph had stayed and tried to think about it and ration it out and reason it and think, well, you know, maybe we could just stay and have a chat. Well, the moment you do that, you're putting yourself in that position. Desire is conceived. You know, we, we said earlier, you know. So so Joseph was running away from that, not just the external, but the internal, getting himself out of that position. And that's what we're to do. So we have to resist, again, the devil within us, that, that devilish, uh, worldly nature. We're to flee from that. <clears throat> the word submit, the beginning of the verse there, uh, is uh, hypotasso uh, in the, the Greek. And he means to put under or to come under authority. And by the way, it's willingly. That's what we're to do. You see, God won't force you. God will indeed, as we've seen already. If you're um, playing around with the things of the world, if they are the dominant influence in your life, because your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, God will destroy you. We've seen that. He will allow you to go through some mortification process so that you come back to him. But what God really wants and what James is urging for all of us as believers is to submit yourselves, therefore, to God. To submit to come under his authority, recognizing who he is, not asserting our own right to ourselves. 
I've said it so many times, uh, this, I'm sure you've heard me say this, that there's two thrones, and if you understand them, you'll understand pretty much everything in life, history, the world, and yourself. The one throne is the throne of Israel. If you understand the throne of Israel, the throne of David, it makes sense of everything that has gone and will go on in the world. Okay, that's one of the thrones. Okay, it's the political throne. It's the throne that Jesus will rule and reign from for eternity. And the the systems of the world uh, are all set to try and stop that happening. Of course, they won't. That's one throne. The other throne is the throne of your own life, the throne of your heart. And if you understand that, if you understand that you need to willingly step down so that Jesus can take that throne, well, then you're you're starting to grow in grace because that's so important that we don't sit and rule our own lives. We've got to allow the Lord to take control, to submit to him willingly, to come under his authority, to sit at his feet. Well, we then go on, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. <laughs> this is pretty heavy stuff from James. You can imagine his readers uh, reading this and thinking, oh, this wasn't what I was expecting, James. Just think of a, a ship as it kind of comes into port. I'm sure some of you have uh, uh, been to Southampton with some of the big cruise ships there. Um, you know, or if you've been anywhere and you just see a large ship come to port. Well, I, I just share this as kind of an idea and an analogy in a sense. We're told to draw near to God and he will draw near to you. We're like the ship. God is like land. God is immovable. God never changes. God never moves. God will never draw away from us. But, you know, if you draw near to God, like a ship coming into port would draw near to the, the, the quayside, to the dock. If we draw near to God, then he draws near to us. Okay, both both are true. Both happen. It's not because God is moving, because God doesn't move. God doesn't change. But as we draw near to God, so God is drawing near to us as well. And that's what we need to do. And then again, cleanse your hands. You know, we're kind of familiar, I guess, now with uh, washing our hands. Um, you know, with the whole coronavirus thing, we've been told to, to regularly wash our hands and we didn't get instruction on how to wash our hands in case some of us weren't aware. You know, for Jews, of course, this was something they understood. This is throughout the ages, throughout the centuries. The Jews have managed to avoid all sorts of plagues and so on and been relatively unaffected because they've had great hygiene because it was laid down in the law for them about washing hands, about doing things over running water uh, and so on. I guess this is idea of cleanliness here. And of course, if we're going to draw near to God, we need to be going with cleansed hands, you know, not uh, touching things of the world, not contaminated by the things of the world. Wash our hands, get rid of those things, get them flushed away from us. And so we come to God with cleansed hands. <laughs> Again, James says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Uh, just again, very, very direct, but just reminding us that we are actually sinners, but we've been saved by grace. Close your hands, you sinners, and he says, and purify your hearts. Yeah, Psalm 51 is a great go-to here, isn't it? David, after his uh, indiscretion, his transgression with Bathsheba, cries out to God, Lord, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. I think it was one of the first sermons I ever preached on Psalm 51. Uh, and I just love the, the idea as David pleads with God to create in him a clean heart. Uh, and here, purify, just you know, purge out everything that is not of God. Everything in your heart, every image you see, everything you've heard, everything that's offended you, uh, every desire you've had that's not godly, every motive or intention that's not been pure, root it out of your hearts. 
And he had you double-minded. Uh, and again, kind of harking back to the first chapter. And really speaking, you'll be confused because you're getting input both from the world and both from God. Okay, as Christians, we get together on Sundays, we fellowship, we, we listen to God's word, we study, and of course other times in the week and so on. And maybe we listen to Christian music from time to time or hymns or worship music, whatever. You know, so we're getting worldly, uh, godly influence. But the problem is sometimes we're getting so much worldly influence too. And he's saying you're confused, you're double-minded. And again, this is exactly what he said back in the uh, opening chapter. And then he says, be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Uh, this isn't the words of somebody that's saying it doesn't matter. James is saying this really matters. You know, if you have to be afflicted, if you end up mourning and weeping, if that's what it takes to sever the ties with the things of the world. You know, th there's a great example in the Old Testament in the days of Ezra. When they've come back to Israel, a number of them have taken Gentile wives. And Ezra, in what seems on the surface a really harsh thing, says anybody that's got a Gentile wife that worships other gods, or whatever, just, you've got to sever that relationship and send them away from you. And you're thinking, you can't say that. But Ezra does say that. And he's absolutely right. Because the danger was that, well, we've all, we've all seen how virus is spread. We've all seen the danger. And that's what Ezra was saying. These people were bringing into the nation of Israel their religion, their worship, their gods. And he'd already seen from history what had happened and what led Israel into Babylon in the first place. Now they're back from Babylon. Ezra, as one of the leaders of the nation, is saying, no, no, we're not going to tolerate this. And so there was that, there was that affliction, there was that mourning as people had to effectively say goodbye to people that they'd loved. But those people had foreign gods, and the, the 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 rule was very simple: they cannot and will not be allowed to be part of the congregation of Israel. You have to separate yourself from them, and that's what it's saying to us here. You know, Jesus said something very similar. He said that if your eye offends you, pluck it out. That's really what James is saying. You know, if your hand offends you, chop it off. Now, of course, in the physical, that isn't going to actually solve any problems. Because the real problem is the heart. And this is what James has already alluded to. Jesus made that very clear as well. It's out of the heart that precede these things. But the principle, the idea that's being conveyed there is even if there has to be this severing of things, and that might be uncomfortable, there might be things in the world you think, actually, you know what, I really like that. I, I, I like sitting and, uh, and watching box sets on Netflix, or I like, you know, spending time with non-Christians. I enjoy their company, or I like watching certain things or doing certain things or going certain places. You know, some of those things, it really might be a severing. It might be hard. But James is saying, you know what? So what? If you're afflicted, if you end up mourning, if you weep, okay. Because he says, let your laugh be turned into mourning. All the things that you're saying you enjoy now, cut them away from you and your joy to heaviness. In Colossians 3, verse 5, Paul there amplifies this a bit more for us. He says, mortify, put to death, therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil uh, concupiscence and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God comes on the children of disobedience, in the which you also walked sometime when you lived in them, but now you also Put off all thing, all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds 
and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. That's a pretty extensive list. You know, even the, the little lies, you know, that sometimes in the workplace, you kind of encourage to tell little things that, that, that maybe seem innocuous, still lying. You know, filthy communication. Sometimes those jokes that, that people kind of pass on to you, maybe on your phone or even just verbally, you know, and you think, oh, Ford, that was quite funny. You know, if it's not godly, keep away from it. There's so many ways this can apply. Again, be afflicted, mourn, weep. Let your laugh be turned to mourning, your joy to heaviness. And Romans 8, 5 says, for to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Isn't that what we want? There's a much better side of the coin to have, to be spiritually minded. And verse 11 carries on and says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if through the spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. There requires action. This isn't just a, yeah, okay, I'll think about it. No, James is saying, Paul is saying, we have got to be really serious about this. We have been given the most amazing thing. We have been given salvation. We, we deserve wrath. We deserve judgment. We've been given life. We've been promised blessing. We've been made heirs. We've been given all these wonderful, incredible things that are, are too many to, to even mention. And that in promise of eternity, all we're being asked to do is to sever the ties with the things of the world. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. Just recognize that, that he is God and that we have to humble ourselves before him. You know, it's the idea of assigning a lower rank or position to ourselves, stepping off the throne of our own hearts. And we're told, in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Okay? God doesn't want us down on the floor and and, and, and wallowing in self-pity. But God wants us to be humble as we come before him, to acknowledge these things, not to try and make excuses. You know, and the danger with, with a message like this, we can all try and make excuses about the things that we want to allow in our lives, the things that are okay because they don't really hurt us. No, no, humble yourselves. Put him on the throne. Let the Holy Spirit be the one to direct your paths. And we're told that he shall lift you up. Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaks evil of his brethren and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. And he goes on and says, there is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. <laughs> thou to judge another. I mean, really, this is an echo of what Paul says in Romans 14. He says, who art thou that judges another man's servant? To his own mastery stands or falls. Yes, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. You know, we're not to be judging others, because the problem is we look with those eyes that are so influenced by the worldly parameters and again, come back to this whole race thing that's going on at the moment. Uh, you know, so much of that is driven by that which is in people's hearts about those that they deem to be important, those that they deem to be of value, those that they deem to, to be of a blessing or benefit to them. And so much of these problems just come from this root. But, you know, we're not to judge. We're, the, the law is able to judge, but we are not to apply the law. We're not to, to judge others because the problem is, of course, as Jesus makes it very clear, that there's a plank in our own eye. You know, when we go to look at another and we look at the speck in theirs, there's a plank in our own. We need to deal with those things. And this is what James is really saying. I think this is why he puts this in here after all that he said. You know, turn the spotlight around on you. Don't start looking at others and saying, well, they can do that. They can do that. No, no, no. Turn the spotlight on yourself. That's what James is saying we should be doing. 
Go to now, he says. All right, come on, get up. Let's think about this. You that say today or tomorrow we will go into such a city, continue uh, there a year and buy and sell and get gain. In other words, he's saying, right, for all of you people that are saying, yeah, but I've got to be practical. I've got to think about the, the things of life, the important things. I've got to provide an income. I've got to do this. He said, hang on a minute. All right, think about this. I'll just read this to you from Oswald Chambers again. He says, in all probability, Satan is as much upset as the Holy Ghost is when men fall into external sin, but for a different reason. When men go into external sin and upset their lives, Satan knows perfectly well they will want another ruler, saviour and deliverer. As long as Satan can keep them in peace and unity and harmony apart from God, he will do so. See Luke eleven twenty one and 22. He says, remember that Satan's sin is dethroning God. You see, one of the situations that Satan would love us to, to remain in and stay in, this is what Oswald Chambers is saying, is that place where we're kind of caught up with the, the run of things. We might not be actively going out and indulging in all sorts of vice and, uh, and, and things that are, uh, 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 horrid and wicked and sordid and so on, you know, but if Satan has got us, so consumed with the things of the world, focusing on, well, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. I haven't got time for things of God because, well, he's got us where he wants us, and he's still feeding us all the time with these worldly things. So, uh, again, quite an insightful quote from, from Oswald there. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapour that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. You know, just think about it this morning. We, we don't know how long we have left. And, and actually, you know what? We've probably got less time left in a sense that the rapture could occur at any moment. You know, for, for people through the ages, they may have had their, their three score and 10. They may have had their 70 years. Some of them may have lived even longer. You know, but the Lord could come back at any moment. We haven't got time to be playing with the things of the world. You know, God is calling us to an intimate walk with him, a walk where he is our God. We are his people. We're supposed to be learning now in this time to be overcomers so that we're going to receive a greater reward and the blessings that, that scripture speaks of. So many things to come. We haven't got time for those things. Life is just a vapor. And you think about the things that seem important to you now, they're really not important. Not the worldly things. Matthew six twenty five to 34, you know the scriptures. Jesus says, don't take any thought for tomorrow. You know, tomorrow's got enough troubles, enough things to worry about. Just put your trust in God right now. Solomon, of course, says that our lives are a butter vapor. You know, they're, they're just passing away. Uh, everything in this, this world, in this life is vanity. And of course, Moses said, Psalm 90, verse 12, it's a Psalm of Moses. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Uh, Chuck Misley used to do this little thing where he used to encourage people to work out how many weekends you have left. You know, so whatever age you are, work out, you know, from, from, from there up to say 70, 80, whatever, you know, you expect to live by if nothing changes. You work out how many weekends you've got left between now and then. It's not many. It's really not many. It'll be quite a shocker. You know, and an actual fact, it helps us to start to think of how frail, how fragile life is. Oswald Chambers says this, summed, Jesus summed up common sense carefulness in the life of a disciple as unbelief. I'm just through that again. Jesus summed up common sense carefulness, because that, that's exactly what we do. We kind of think, well, it is common sense. We've got to do this. We've got to think about that. Make these plans for this bit and that bit. He says it's unbelief. He says, do not worry about your life. Don't take the pressure of your provision upon yourself. 
right? Very, very applicable to us. It is not only wrong to worry, it is unbelief. Worrying means that we do not believe that God can look after the practical details of our lives. And it is never anything but those details that worry us. Have you ever noticed what Jesus said would choke the word he has put in? Is it the devil? No, the cares of this world. It is always our little worries. We say, I will not trust when I cannot see. And that is where unbelief begins. The only cure for unbelief is obedience to the Spirit. The greatest word of Jesus to his disciples is abandon. And that's what James is pleading with us here to do. Verse 15, for that you ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now you rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. He's saying, you know, some of you are so kind of pleased about the plans you're making, what you're doing. But that's that's not good. That's purely being driven by the world, by the world's expectations. And that's the tie. That's the source we have to break. And so to conclude this morning, this is a powerful ending. All right. Make sure you're sitting comfortably. Verse 17, therefore, to him that knows to do good. And by the way, if we've just gone through this chapter, we can't now say we don't know it. Therefore, to him that knows to do good and does it not to him, it is sin. All right, James just concludes by really, uh, it's not so much a bombshell as a, as a just a big explosion in our minds and hearts by simply saying to us, OK, you now know what you're being asked to do. There is no excuse. Maybe you hadn't understood these things fully before. Maybe you really weren't aware of the the flow from the world coming in and influencing you and the way that we should be allowing God to be enthroned, Jesus to be enthroned in our lives and to, to allow the spirit to feed us, to direct our paths and so on. Maybe we should be allowing God, you know, maybe we haven't understood that, that we need to be letting God create in us the desires we should have. But, you know, now we know all that stuff. If we don't do it, it is open rebellion against God. That's what sin is. So there is no excuse. Pretty heavy message this morning. And believe you me, it's just as heavy to me as it is to you because this applies to every single one of us. But, you know, this comes from a heart of love for you. Not not my heart. My heart is a heart of love for you. And I want you to, to do these things. And I, as I want my own life to, to echo this. You know, but this is God's heart for us, that we would walk with him, that we would know the blessings that he has for us. Again, every good gift comes from him. Think again, an incredible verse, but he gives more grace, more grace. Whatever situation, whatever challenge, there is more grace. He will give all that we need. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father, thank you for this open heart surgery this morning as we've been forced to to really evaluate, to take stock of our own lives, just to consider, again, Lord, what it is that influences, what it is, Lord, that shapes the way we view other people, the way that we react, the way that we speak, the things we say. Oh, and Lord, we pray for that more grace to overflow in our lives as we come to the throne of grace to obtain help in a time of need. And Lord, I think all of us this morning recognize that we are now in a time of need. We need you. We cannot walk this walk. We cannot walk by faith without that grace. But Lord, we thank you for that great statement. Lord, that wonderful, wonderful statement. In James 
4 verse 6 that you give more grace. Lord, let us live and walk in that grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.